America's founding fathers believed their vision, the city upon a hill, could only succeed with a special people in a special place. Over 240 years later, we the people, our American story is still unfolding. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every Friday as I spotlight those who embody the American values of faith, courage, and heroism. You will be uplifted, inspired, proud, and humbled to call yourself an American. American history is more than history. It's personal. You know, especially right now, people are just, they're, they're because of the, the, the hatred that's happening, we're starting to see anyone in uniform the same. Whether you got a shitty cop that does something really shitty or someone in any uniform that does something bad, you got that all over. We're people. People make stupid mistakes. There are plenty of people full of hate out there. 99.9% of all the rest of us are doing it for the right reasons. You know, I went over there and I spilled my blood for the person that's waving their flag or the person that doesn't want to wave the flag for them to have both the same rights. And it was never about hatred. I'm going to go over there because I want to kill people. It was about protecting people and allowing them to have freedom. The following episode contains graphic content and may not be suitable for some listeners. Episode 35, Ian's American Story. Welcome to another episode of We the People, Our American Story. My guest today is Ian Newland. Ian, welcome. I am so humbled and blessed that you are here today. Thanks for having me. I look forward to it. Let's begin with the start of your story. Can you share with us a little bit about growing up? Yeah, I grew up a poor farm kid in Ohio. I am part Native American, um, so my family is very cultural in agriculture and outdoors, so I grew up farming and fishing and hunting. I didn't have a lot of money. It was small mom and pops farm. I was an athlete all through school. I mean, it is, I remember when I barely could stand swinging a baseball bat at a t-ball tied to a string and chasing footballs with my brothers barefoot. So sports was a big thing for me, um, grow, especially growing up in the Midwest that, you know, everyone's football and wrestling. My Sports career really took off when I hit junior high school and I had a bit of a fierce attitude on the wrestling mat and I made state championship four years in a row and was just loving being in that um, culture of athletes and it was diverse too. You know, you have black kids from the inner city and you have uh, Latino um, immigrants that were literally passing through the state uh, as they were working different farms. It would jump on the football field or baseball team and being around all these different cultures. And uh, right after high school, I took some time off to decide if I was going to go into Ohio State University or if I was looking at community college. My parents needed help on the farm. I had an opportunity to move to Minnesota and make what I, you know, back then, and this is, you know, 1998, really good money helping another farm, which was an industrial hog farm right on the border of South Dakota in Minnesota. So for the first time I left home and it was, it was hard work. Uh, it was a lot more than I expected, but I moved up there and I was doing really well and was looking to come back to go to Ohio State University and 9-11 happened. And first thing I did was call my older brother who served in the army, Desert Storm. And then, you know, I both my grandfather to World War II veterans, all army guys, all army airborne rangers. And I was like, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about joining continuously showing the Twin Towers on TV, and it was really affecting me, and I'm super healthy, an athlete, never been in trouble, don't do drugs, don't, you know, do anything, so I also love to cook. It was, like, one of my big things in, in growing up, and I remember my brother telling me, yeah, join the Army, tell him, you know, tell him you want to join the infantry, you want to be airborne, do not tell him you cook food. <laughs> Listen, nobody can cook Army food. You just heat it up. You're going to hate it. You're going to be miserable. <laughs> idea that I have my own kitchen and be making glorious food for the troops. So I took his advice and I did and I joined the infantry. <laughs> Do you remember where you were when you heard about September 11th? Yeah. Because I yeah. know where I was and I'm sure you do too. Yeah, I was just getting off of work. I had worked uh, two double shifts that, that week and I had about four hours in between my second job. Um, I worked for uh, Bayliner Boats uh, at night. So I rushed home, was going to take a nap, and I was just getting ready for bed. And then I got the phone call from my dad to turn the TV on. So, yeah, I remember it very specifically. How soon after 9-11 did you join them? 
I went and saw the recruiter within three weeks. Oh, wow. And how old were you? Um, 20, 20 at the time. Uh, by the time I went to basic, I was 21. And where did you go to basic? We're in Georgia. Okay, I, a lot of you go there then, right? That, that's the home of the Army Infantry. So if you're infantry, that's where you go. You went to basic and then after that, what comes next? Yeah, so I came in um, with the Airborne Ranger contract, 18 X-ray possible special forces, but due to what was building up, and I graduated a couple weeks after the memorial of 9-11. So I remember them in the middle of the night, marching us all out to the parade field, sat us down, said, sit down, shut up. We all sat down, and had no idea what was going on. And they pulled a jumbotron up and played a memorial of 9-11. And then the infantry commander got up and gave a speech about why we're doing what we're doing, you know, stay motivated. And then I think it was two nights later, I did the, it's called the bayonet march. It's a 25 mile road march. It's the last thing you do in infantry to graduate, made it through. After that, did you get deployed right away? So after that, I get, like I said, so I was on a contract to go airborne ranger. And that's what I was hoping to do. But due to the buildup that they were doing for um, deployments, I came down on orders to deploy to an infantry unit in Germany. So before I could even get my B-bag packed, they told me I was moving to Germany um, within a couple of days. So with big graduation, packed my bags, said goodbye to my parents and was on a plane to, I landed in Frankfurt, Germany in October of 2002. And then I was put with the big red one in Germany because they were closest to the battlefield, I guess, Iraq and Afghanistan. So it was a rapid deployed unit. So I stayed with them uh, right away as a private. They just got back from Bosnia and Kosovo. So a lot of the guys came back as E4s and E5s. We're looking at PCS or get out of the military. They'd been in pre 9-11. And to be honest, I did not like the unit. I got there and it was not at all what I expected. You know, I thought it was going to be train, 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 just like basic, I went in and you know, what my brother told me about the army. And I get there and all these guys are doing is drinking beer. They were like, all right, new guy, go down and pull out the 240s and just spend the day cleaning weapons while they played video games and drink beer in their, in their <laughs> parents' rooms. And I was like, I was just pissed. <laughs> Three weeks, I was like, you know, miserable. I was like, this is the worst idea ever. Talking to my buddies, this is before social media. And we had pay phones in, in the hallways of the barracks and I'm calling home and guys are getting deployed to Afghanistan and I'm talking to buddies that are in 82nd Airborne and, you know, I'm sort of feeling really sorry for myself. I was like, this sucks. The worst unit ever. And I was bored. And then we did a change of command. And when we did that, they sent all the guys that were PCS and an ETS and out. And I swear it was almost overnight. It was like a Monday. And by that Friday, we had a brand new unit. We had guys coming in from Rangers, we had airborne guys coming in from 82nd Airborne, and the unit changed. We went through a captain that we had that was, again, on its way out. So he was kind of like, yeah, I'm leaving. You know, you guys, <laughs> clean shit. I'm not even worried about it. I wanted to be the guy that was blowing stuff up all day long. And we get this new captain in who obviously knew the unit was heading overseas, and everything changed. It was train, train, train. And I'm in Germany. Next thing I know... I'm three weeks into my first field problem. And for the field problem in the infantry means you go in the middle of nowhere with everything you can carry and you basically pretend like you're chasing the enemy and just learn how to maneuver in the mountains of Bavaria. And it was hot and then it was cold and it would rain and it would snow. And I remember kicking myself for talking about how bored I was. Crap. This sucks too, right? <laughs> exactly, I'm in knee deep mud and these guys are screaming and yelling and there's nobody out here, what are we doing? But we trained up really hard, and within four months of that, we got orders to deploy to the Sunni Triangle in Iraq. So we packed everything up, packed our connexes up, and off we went to Balad in Samara, which is basically right in the center of Iraq. Was there a lot of action there at that time? No, we didn't know. Um, honestly, Intel was, again, this is 2004, so we had just done the invasion. So we had no idea because it was just sporadic as hell. We thought we crushed them. One moment we're like, oh, well, they're throwing flowers and pulling down statues. And the next minute, there's small pockets of insurgent fighters fighting back. So we, we never heard, I didn't, personally had never heard of Balad or Samara. I had no idea where it was other than looking at a map. I knew Baghdad, I knew Tikrit. But I'm like, oh, they're sending us into the farmlands. That's 
weird. Maybe, you know, I thought maybe the fighters ran out into the country and, and like Vietnam. And so we were pretty anxious getting there right away and doing the buildup. It was um, presence patrol after. So basically we drove the streets all day and all night as infantry guys and never really saw the enemy at first. It was um, not that, again, not what I thought it was going to be. It was hot, very hot for being March. But then the indirect fire started happening. Uh, within 72 hours, we were on a tiny little fob between basically Blod and Samara. Um, it was called Bob Palawada, named after a commander that was killed there the year before. Very small. I want to say, you know, three football fields by four football fields, a fence, some landmines, and a road. And that was it. And, you know, we had to build it into what we had. There was no running water. There was no showers. There was no chow. And then we started taking mortar rounds every single day. And then it turned into, within a month, three to four times a day. We didn't really take any casualties from the incoming. A lot of vehicles got hit until about three months in. And we had a guy, staff sergeant got his, um, he got wounded pretty bad and had to be evacuated. And then mid 2004, moving into 2005, the insurgency in that area just exploded. It came out of everywhere. And what it turned out to be was when we disbanded the Iraqi army back then, you know, we told them all, you know, you were Saddam loyalists, you don't have a job anymore. And then we tried to build a new army. A lot of the commanders of the old army were pissed off because they were party members and they believed in their country and they started their own militias and started to attack us. And, that, and then we started dealing with that in small arms fire sporadically. Uh, again, central Iraq is like rolling desert, small villages, a lot of orchards, and we were pretty close to the Tigris River. So the closer you would get, the more vegetation you would get. So it was a, a diverse desert area. But again, we weren't really getting hammered hard or anything like that until, I don't know if you remember the first elections we held in Iraq, where we were, we were like, let's let the people vote who wants to be in charge. And all these people came out. You saw the pictures where they had the ink on their fingers, where they were, you know, doing their registration to vote. Well, the insurgency decided to start killing them all. We got tasked out to go protect the polling stations. And specifically, what I remember was a schoolhouse that was abandoned that they used for a polling station. We got into one of the biggest, the biggest at that time, gunfight I've ever been into. And that was kind of the realization that, wow, this is war. Can I back up a little bit with you, Ian? Sure. Okay. Yeah. When you come to Iraq, are you with the Big Red One then? Correct. Okay. And when you're coming into Iraq, are you nervous? Are you apprehensive? Getting out there and bringing stabilized, you know, overall, our overall mission made sense to me. Stop the bad guys, support the locals, make the war over. How old were you at that time? 23. You were a little bit older then. Do you think if you had been younger that you would have been more apprehensive? I didn't know better either. AK-47 fired at my face at that time. So... It, it was that idea that I'm American, we're going to go in there, we're going to flash our bat or our flag and, and our weapons, and then they're going to run and the thing's going to be over. We're going to kick some butt and go home. Exactly, exactly. They're shooting at you that all that changes. I think it takes a little bit of a different mentality to be a soldier. I have a 17-year-old son, and I cannot even imagine him yeah. <laughs> signing up to go to war. In a year. There's a difference between being a soldier and most of these guys, I'm sure that you've interviewed say the same thing, and being front lines. Being an, a Marine Corps 0311 infantry or being an army infantryman or being a frontline ranger or special forces, completely different. Our role is not to support other people in a gunfight. Our job is to go get into the gunfights. So to go through that, you go through a lot of rigorous training to make sure that you're mentally strong enough for that as much as you can get to be that point before it actually happens. When you start experiencing this sporadic mortar at your first with it, does that alarm you at all? Absolutely. I think, and I've had this discussion with many of my guys, you know, the most terrifying things in combat are the unseen enemies. Mm. Mortar rounds, when they're fired close, you can hear it go off. But again, you have no idea where the hell it's going to hit. You know, when you see a muzzle flash of a guy shooting at you, even if he's 10 meters away or 100 meters away, you've got a point of reference. You know where he's at. You know where it's coming from. 
I can engage back. I can shoot at him to stop him from killing my friends. Mortar rounds, IEDs, you have no idea. What's the protocol with mortar fire then? We don't, we're infantry. We take cover and then we have infantry mortarmen that use radars to pick up where the point of origin is and then shoot counter, counter battery. Okay. You're at the schoolhouse that day then yeah. and you're going through that firefight. Does your training just kick in? Absolutely. So that the fear doesn't overwhelm you? Yeah. Again, the, the fear doesn't build up. It doesn't really kick, kick in the ass until afterwards. Probably because of the adrenaline, right? Yeah, your adrenaline's going, your buddies are shooting, and in a small arms fight, we're good at that. We train and train and train and train and train. You know, we shoot millions of rounds before we even go down there, so we're very good and accurate with our, with our weapons, and we can defend against that. Car bombs, IEDs, rockets, you can't defend yourself against that. You know, it, it's just going to come in. So we got to do our job, and the beard didn't kick in, like a rolling joke where, you're, you know, guys are smoking cigarettes and you're standing there afterwards covered in sweat. It's like, man, did you see that bullet almost hit me? And it's not until you get home years later that you're like, I almost got shot in the head that day. Like, yeah, absolutely terrifying. But <laughs> you're in the moment, you're just making jokes about it. And you're like, yeah, yeah, it almost got me in the head. Did all of you escape that day without injury or without any We death? did. We did, um, and no civilians were killed that day. I don't remember the head count on the enemy, but we took the fight to them. We caught them. They set off an IED on a road that was supposed to hit some civilian vehicle, but they missed, so they gave themselves away, and we were able to counterattack four and stop them from getting into the village. So they never even set foot in the village, and then they were met with American infantry guys with heavy weapons. So, you know, they fought back, but it didn't, it didn't last very long compared to later in life. I don't want to get too gruesome or whatever, but when you see your first dead body of an enemy, how does that affect you? I mean, we know how it would affect you, uh, someone on your team, but you see that first and you've never experienced anything like that. What does that do to you? Uh, the first Iraqi that I saw die, the first death that occurred, which we call moral injuries, was not somebody that I had engaged. Uh, I was engaged in a different side of town, and when the fight was over, I joined the team to go police everything up, clean everything up, take PDA, battle damage assessment, take pictures, and, and uh, we came across a, a man who had fired an RPG and was met with return fire by a Bradley fighting vehicle on a 25-millimeter chain gun, shot him in the throat and in the face, and he was in the process of dying. And that stayed with me. That was, that was gruesome, because he wasn't calling yet, and I had to watch the thing happen. And I had to keep telling myself that just moments before he was trying to kill us. You know, because as an American, the first thing you want to do when you see someone that's severely injured is help them. But it doesn't take doctor school to realize this person's not going to make it no matter what you do. Even the best trauma ER in America, if he was there at that moment, there was no saving that guy's life. And that does, you know, that sticks with you. It sometimes pops up in my dreams and, you know, conversations we have sometimes between me and some of my guys about it as well. Yeah. Do you become desensitized to it after a while, or is it always something that takes you back? No, you do. Um, for me, I, I stayed pretty compassionate with the locals my first tour. First time over there, you know, I, I was playing soccer with the little kids. I was throwing food to the locals. You know, I was talking to the interpreters, getting to know them and their families and their stories. And I had a lot of compassion. And it wasn't until my second tour when I lost one of my soldiers. When I watched one of my friends die at their hand, and then it happened again, and it happened again, and it happened again, and every time one of my guys would die or get killed or get severely wounded, that compassion just got less and less until you become almost robotic. At the end, it was really tough because I didn't want to be there anymore. You served, I see here, 38 months. Overseas, correct. Right. How long was your first deployment then? I did about 13 and a half months my first deployment. And then I was stationed in Germany the entire time. Okay. I so, was trying to understand that. So you went to Iraq for 13 months, then you went back to Germany. Germany and how long were yeah. you in Germany? Another year. Okay. That first deployment to Iraq, do you go back to Germany feeling like you're a different person? Are you sure. okay? Or sure. what's going um, on? Again, I was young. We didn't lose anyone from my company. Uh, we had a couple support people that we lost. 
we felt like we won. Uh, we had a couple really big engagements, Operation Baton Rouge and Samara, Fallujah. And we walked through that knowing, and we had, we were, hand, you know, we had guys get silver stars. I myself got two bronze stars for some of the bigger firefights I got into later. So I came home feeling pretty positive about the deployment. We had basically kicked the enemy out of the area. We did what we were supposed to do. When you're in Germany, are you wanting to take it easy or are you itching to get back? Yeah, a lot of guys were taking it easy. A lot of guys, you know, hey, we're going to take 45 days off and drink some beer and go home. A lot of guys went on vacations. I instead decided to run for non-commissioned officer of the year. I got promoted. I went to airborne school. I went to air assault school. I went to ranger school. So I took my time off and used it to help promote my career. Wow, that's a lot. It was. And so basically, I didn't have any free time between deployments. What I realized was when I was over there, it's not that I loved being at war, but I did love leading soldiers. I loved being a non-commissioned officer, and I loved the guys I was with. And when I came home, it dawned on me that if I don't go back over there, somebody else is going to. One of my friends, one of my brothers, one of my friends from high school's son might end up over there. So I thought, well, I already know the area. I know the people. We did really well. I'm going to go back. I'm going to make a career out of this, not just do my four years. So what do I need to do to advance my career? And again, I had a couple pretty big citations and, and awards and decorations when I was deployed the first tour really helped me be able to move forward with my non-commissioned officer career. Did you come home on leave at all then? No. All right, you're in Germany and you're getting ready for your second trip over there. How does that work? Busy. We knew our time was coming, but it happened months, months, months earlier than we thought it would. You know, you get a year off for dwell time. During that time, I had school scheduled, and then I was slotted to go to the 2nd Ranger Battalion um, and leave my unit. And then we came down on stop law, stop movement, which we all know. That means that no one's allowed to leave the unit. Nothing can change the unit. And we know what that means. That means you're about to get deployed. And it, it happened a lot earlier than we thought it was. So there was talk that we were going... Um, to a couple different spots like Ramadi, Iraq, because we knew that kind of, we knew those fighters that was, you know, some of the, what we know now as ISIS fighters and all of a sudden we got a Frago and they were like, you're leaving in 72 hours. Pack everything, leave all your vehicles, leave all, every, just bring your weapons, your night vision and your gear, get on the plane. Then that's when the apprehension and a little bit of fear started kicking in because we were like, what? None of us knew what was going on, not even the commanders knew until we got to Kuwait. They were sending us into the worst area of Baghdad. Okay, so they're sending you really quick because things had heated up significantly. Yeah. Are you coming in as the 1st Infantry Division 126 Blue Spaders? We're a historical unit of the Big Red One. We were some of the first ones to go into Vietnam. We led a couple really big fights in, in World War II. Um, our unit's been around for a very long time. So we were significant. And then... Again, with infantry units, when they're training, uh, the big brass looks at your stats, almost like a football game, if you will. Who's kicking ass and who's not? Who's ready to go and who's not? Who's the most squared away? Um, and we always took pride in being the guys that were always ready to go. Um, and we have a name throughout the Big Red One, being the Blue Spaders, that we were the guys that were always ready to fight. To be the only infantry unit to move into this area to relieve this small, small 101st team that had suffered severe casualties in Northeast Baghdad. Had you gone over the first time with the Blue Spaders? Yep. This military language is so different for me and I really need to get schooled on it so I don't look like a total idiot. I apologize. <laughs> when you get there, do you automatically know that things, it's gonna be very different this time? Absolutely, so as we were prepping for everything, we hit the boots in, in Kuwait, I knew just, it's like some of the other NCOs have been over before. Something was going to be a lot different when the LT comes to you and says, hey, I need you to take 10 guys down to the motor pool. We're getting all brand new Humvees. We're getting all brand new rifles. We're getting all brand new 50 cows. And we're like, what? You're giving us brand new stuff, not the Air Force? What's going on here? Like when they would give us a steak dinner on base all of a sudden, our first tour, we knew, oh, well, they were about to send us into the city to do a big gunfight. So yeah. Oh shit, what's going on? 
we get all this brand new stuff and then we had to train with it for three weeks. And during that three weeks, I got selected to go with a couple of lieutenants to do what's called an advon to go in with the guys that are already there so that they can show you around. So I got there a couple of weeks before the unit did with my LT. We landed in the middle of the night on a helicopter and then they picked us up in some Humvees, drove us real quick into a house. And that's where they were living. It wasn't even a small compound this time. It was a house surrounded by Iraq. And they said, come on, we're going on patrol. And now it's about two o'clock in the morning. We drive about 200 meters out of the gate, they stop. And I mean, right away you see the fires. You can, I mean, it was hotter than hell in the middle of the night. And the city was so much different than where I'd been in Iraq before. I'm talking buildings that are 10 stories high, huge neighborhoods. Imagine downtown New York, but now in Iraq. Lots of, pe lots of places to hide, right? Lots of alleyways, lots of trash piles, lots of sewage in the streets. I mean, it was, it was an absolute mess. And we went about 200 meters and they stopped. They said, okay, this is the statue of Antar Square. This is as far as we go. Every time we've gone any further than this, we take casualties and there's only like seven of us left. We don't have the manpower to fight anymore. That's why you guys are coming in. And we turned around and went back to base. As we're pulling in the base and, and the sun's starting to come up, you see bullet holes all over the house. They have taken direct fire and indirect mortar rounds and rockets almost every single day. And that's where you're staying. And they, that's exactly. And they were a MIT team, which is a military intelligence team that helps train the local Iraqi army and, and like the local police. And they were at the, the border of what's called Seder City, where the Tigris makes the peninsula across the river from the green zone. And <clears throat> it just turned into a gigantic insurgent hotbed so they flew us in and eventually we moved all 120 of our company into this house first platoon down in the basement second platoon on the second floor third platoon spread out all, all the way up the third floor to the rooftop you better get along right <laughs> and if not you figure it out real quick yeah we knew right away it was gonna be a lot different i know this is a difficult time so please share what you want. Things are bad. What's happening? Yeah, so once we took over full command um, of Bob Apache, we got into a significant gunfight, I think that first week. Might have been in the first couple of days. And it was the enemy really trying to figure out who, who these new guys were. What they would normally do is, the streets are tight, and you get a hand grenade rolled underneath a Humvee or thrown over a wall, it detonates. We react to contact in that direction and then anywhere from 10 to 20 fighters just start taking shots at you from rooftop windows, alleyways, and then they run. Figure out what we're gonna do, how are these guys gonna fight? So are they gonna blow everything up? You know, what are, what are these guys, are they gonna call for helicopters? And that went on for quite a while. It was just sporadic gunfire kind of testing the waters with us. And now we're talking mid-2006. So IEDs were not only known, but they're starting to get really sophisticated. Everything from a trash bag full of explosives wired together with a battery to pressure plates to these new shape charge EFP explosively formed penetrators that can literally cut an armored vehicle in half. So my platoon, we were first platoon. We had three platoons plus our headquarters, or our headquarters company platoon. And we would rotate so that every single minute of the day, there was one platoon, which is anything from 20 to 30 guys driving the streets of our area. For the eight hour patrol, the next guys go out. And we just keep rotating that. And then we take guys that are on that third window and we break them down into base duties and then QRF, which is quick reaction force. So if the guys are out in sector and they get hit, these guys take a team of 15, a couple Humvees or Bradleys, whatever they get their hands on, and they run out there to help the guys out. I remember in September, we, we hadn't been there very long, maybe a month. 2006, right? Correct. Our base got hit by a Katusha rocket, and it felt like an earthquake. I was sleeping down in the basement, and the whole building started shaking, and the rounds just start kicking everywhere, and we were surrounded, taking shots from everywhere. I mean... Automatic rifle, RPKs, RPGs, mortar rounds are coming in, guys on the rooftop in their shorts and t-shirts with machine guns shooting back. We jump in our vehicles and head out the gate. 
and got in a pretty decent gunfight with these guys on the streets. And that was one of the most intense fights. It was the most intense fight I had been in at that point in time. And then a week later, uh, the area was, <laughs> so we have these computers in your Humvees as a non-commissioned officer when you're a truck commander, it's called a Blue Force Tracker. And it shows you areas not to go into. Our area was shown all the time, don't go into. So if units are driving through Baghdad, you don't want to go in there. And we had an MP unit come through our area in the middle of the afternoon and they got ambushed. They got The first vehicle got hit by a roadside bomb and it blew it to, to shit and it killed all the Iraqis that were in it. And then they trapped the military policemen that were trying to train these guys and put them in small arms fight. And we went out there and got into a big gunfight with the enemy that was out there. Um, we had a guy get shot and we treated him and what I noticed was the sophistication of the enemy that I was fighting compared to the enemy that we fought the first war. These guys were using signal flares. They were hitting us in waves, different directions. These were a, tra a trained militia that we were up against. They were using heavy weapons, incohesiveness. It wasn't sporadic. Like they knew exactly what they were doing. And then I almost got hit really bad that day. I got on a grenade launcher when my gunner went down and I had some rounds come in through the gunner's hatch and hit me in my plate. And that was the first scare when I realized I'm not as tough as I thought I was. That bullet almost ripped me in half. And, and uh, so that was a big one. That was September. How do you will yourself to go back? I guess you have no choice, but after experiencing something like that, your first real scare where, oh my gosh, I could have been killed. And yeah. then you have to do it all over again. How do you get your mind in the right place? Immediately after that fight, we took our first KIA. A staff sergeant that was shot by uh, a heat round from a sniper went right through his plate, right through his pulmonary artery, right out of his back plate and through the Humvee. And he was from Kentucky. He was a fun, fun guy, a little chubby for being in the infantry, loved to make jokes. And that is how you motivate yourself to go back out. And when I saw him come in with a hole through his chest and then come out with a green blanket over him, the only motivation you need to go back out there to stop those guys from doing that shit again. So you put your gear back on, you put your kit on, you clean your weapon when you haven't slept in three days to make sure that that doesn't happen again. Your mission was more compassionate the first time. The second time, this is all about taking care of business, protecting your guys. There was a big change there, right? Yeah, so the mission this time was to disrupt, stop, and kill the enemy with close quarters combat so that we could create a blocking point. They were pushing munitions <clears throat> into Baghdad through our area when we got there. Large IEDs were being placed outside of the green zone coming right through this area. So they said, get in there, find them and kill them so that they stopped doing this. They weren't about to just let us go in there and stop them from doing it. So they fought back really, really heavily. Before it was win the hearts and minds, protect the people, let's, let's get a foothold in there and then the war will be over. Two, two years later, the war's still going, it's getting worse. These guys are bad, go in there and stop them. And your unit suffered a lot. We did. Losing 25 men. My battalion lost 40, it's like 43 or 44 during that deployment. At that point in time, in 2008, when we pulled out of Iraq, and were replaced by the 82nd Airborne. We were the hardest hit unit since Vietnam. When you get into these firefights then, does it get to a point that you're wondering who's not going to come back? Like who's it gonna be this time or do you not even think about that? You try, no, um, you know, yeah, it runs through your mind afterwards when you're you know, sitting on your cot, cleaning the blood off your gear and scrubbing your, your weapon down that's covered in carbon from firing thousands of rounds in a gunfight and then your adrenaline stops. Yeah, you wonder, am I next? But when you head out the wire, you gotta shut that off. In November, you remember we hung Saddam. When we executed Saddam, uh, I shouldn't say we, we turned him over to the Iraqis and they executed him. The area that we were in was basically his son Uday's favorite area. So there was a lot of Saddam loyalists, a lot of spray paint on the, on the walls that, God loves or Allah loves Saddam and Uday. So it was, a, it was a bath party area for the Saddam. A lot of Saddam's Republican guard guys lived in that area. 
So on November 5th, when they executed him, we got into a 13-hour gunfight. And we would go out and fight, and I became a commander of a vehicle and took out a ton of enemy and then had to dismount and get on the streets and fight with my rifle and then back in the vehicle, go back to base and reload and go back out. And we didn't take a single casualty. So we felt super great that we showed them that day that we mean business. And with roadside bombs and everything, we always, we always suffered were some vehicle losses. Is that unusual for a firefight to be that long? Is that no, standard? Not in that area. Really? Not in that area. No, because what will happen is you'll fight for three hours and then they'll stop for two hours. And you start driving around and all of a sudden another wave comes. Okay. Um, or helicopters that come in and blow some shit up with their rockets and then they stop for a couple hours and then they come back again. So, you know, when I say 13 hours, it's not like you're just nonstop. It does feel like that. Don't get me wrong. A day later when you're completely exhausted, you're like, man, you know, it felt nonstop. Um, but then what they started to do was they started using a lot more heavy IEDs on us. And they started getting sophisticated with their ambushes. They realized they couldn't stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with the blue spaders because we were killing them every time. So they started implanting deep, buried, heavy IEDs, pressure-plated landmines. And when a vehicle would hit it, they would surround us with RPGs and start slamming in RPGs on the vehicles that were already on fire and then aim for the medics. They started shooting at our leadership with snipers. I lost a good friend of mine, Sergeant Mock, to an EFP. That's the first time I saw one, which was the very beginning of October. He was a truck commander and, you know, it cut him in half. And I'd never heard of an EFP other than in PowerPoint presentations prior to deployment. And then when I, when, you know, when this thing went off, it sounded like something that the Americans use from, from aircraft. It sounded like a 500 pound bomb was dropped from an aircraft, not something that was laid in the ground. Oh, Ian, you didn't actually see that, did you? So I did not move up to that vehicle. So no, I did not have to witness that attack. Uh, but I saw, saw some later. This time too, we were dealing with a lot of secretarian violence. It was not uncommon for us to turn the corner, hear gunshots, react to contact, get over there and find three little kids shot dead in the street. And then a man with his head cut off and everyone moving through traffic like there's nothing even there, just stepping right over them. And we would call it in and they'd send the Iraqi police out to clean it up. And then we'd move four or five blocks and there it'd be again. There'd be two, three guys with their heads cut off stacked up on the corner. This is what American people don't understand, I think. They have no clue. I have no clue listening to you tell me this, what that does to a person to see that kind of hatred and violence. I can't even speak. It's no wonder, I mean, PTSD. How could you not? You don't have to be shot, blown up to witness the kind of moral injuries the guys are sustaining over there just to see what happens to the general population that they were doing to each other. Like I said, little kids, I've seen children that were my kids' age at the time. My kids were five, six years old at the time. And I remember specifically on a day hearing massive amounts of gunfire pulling around the corner and a little boy had been shot in both of his hands, both of his elbows and his chest, his knees, his feet, and then executed and laid out in the middle of the street for us to find. Because they knew that, you know, we have compassion for children. We're Americans. You know, we, we love kids and we love to protect the young and the weak. And, and that was something that they capitalized on to try to demoralize us. And it sucked. Can we talk about that day? And if you need to skim over it, I totally get that. So but you're talking what, about December 4th. December 4th. This is December 4th, 2006 then, right? Yeah. So okay. let me brief you on something prior to that. So at this point in time, I'd been shot, shot at many times. I had a, a parachute accident in Fort Benning, Georgia, crashed into the ground super fast, super hard, thought I died, didn't die. Had a roadside bomb hit two of the vehicles I was in. In late October, I had a hand grenade put in my Humvee. We were doing a patrol. Some guy fired at us. He was on a scooter. <laughs> so we chased him. He dropped the scooter and ran into a huge apartment building. I sat with the vehicles and I stayed the NCOIC on the ground, directing fires to protect the building. And my gunner yelled grenade, and I hear tink, tink. And then he jumps out of the truck. I'm not sure what happened. The door's open. We jump out. We run to the next vehicle. And I look at him, and I said, are you sure that was a grenade, not a rock? They threw rocks at us all. They threw all kinds of stuff at us. And he was like, well, I'm pretty sure, sorry, that was a hand grenade. Mind you, it's been like three minutes. Nothing's blown up. I'm like, well, that's probably a rock. Run back to my truck, and sure enough, 
there's a, a Vietnam style pineapple hand grenade with no spoon and no pen sitting right behind my seat. It just didn't go off. It was a dud. Check that box. <laughs> I was like, man, I've been shot at. I've been blown up. I've been had hand grenades thrown at me. I'm good. I checked all the boxes. It seems a little morbid to laugh, but I say this a lot that I think you have to, right? Sometimes you have to. You because... <laughs> so December 4th, we're, we're preparing to go out on patrol and the LT's brief and everybody giving the safety brief early in the morning. Um, I want to say about five o'clock in the morning. We're on the first set of patrols, my platoon. And he looks over at me and he's like, he says, you look like shit. And I'm like, yeah, thanks, sir. Been here quite a while. And he was like, you haven't taken a single mission off. I said, no, sir. And he's like, I want you to go get some more sleep. And he's like, I want you to take this mission off. And I'm like, no, sir, I'm good. You know, my guys are going out. My Humvee's prepped. He said, no, we're going to hand off your Humvee to somebody else you find. It's an order. Go back downstairs. Roger that. So they head out. And of course, my anxiety's through the roof because I haven't just sat back on base once. And now, you know, every time I hear a gunshot, I think it's them. And it wasn't. So they roll back in. So I go out with my platoon sergeant, which is in his truck, my roommate, Sergeant Lyle Bueller, who was my roommate, my first tour. On the 50 cal gunner, gunner's seat is Ross McGinnis. Sergeant Thomas is the TC, a very good friend of mine. The medic sitting in the back seat. And I noticed there's no one sitting in the other seat. And I'm like, hey, who the hell is supposed to be in the seat here? And they're like, oh, it's Cook. We dropped him off. He went on R&R. &R. And I'm like, sweet, I'm taking his seat. And <laughs> Doonsar is like, I thought he told you to take the day off, the LT. I said, no, he said I had to take that mission off. Sorry, we're good. And I jump in the truck with him. We refuel and we head out the gate. And as we hit the gate, we get orders to stop. And it's the commander. Our captain, he comes in with the radio and he's like, hey, you guys, uh, I'm going to join you on this patrol. We had this one of the biggest, oldest mosques in our sector. And he's like, I want to go down there and look at this area to put a giant generator in to give these people some electricity back. All right, whatever. You know, we're just going to go drive in circles anyway. Sure. So he falls into the convoy. So now we have six vehicles instead of five. So we take the last truck spot. So we're at the very rear of the convoy, which means McGinnis is facing the rear. So now he's looking right at me because I'm sitting in the back seat behind a driver. So we're politely telling jokes, <laughs> heading out the gate. And it, it's a pretty warm day for me in December. I remember I had a sweat rag on my head because I was already sweating. So you put that in your mind. I hate the heat. And we head to the mosque. We get to the mosque. And we make a left-hand turn. And it looks normal. You know, no gunfire. People are walking around shopping, which is good. Because when you see nobody on the streets, it's usually something's about to happen seeing more civilians means that it must be safe for them to walk around. As soon as we make the turn, there's nobody on the street anymore. And, you know, that's when your gut starts to get a little, all right, here it comes. So, you know, you start getting in a posture ready to fight. And then next thing I know, McGinnis is yelling hand grenade, hand grenade. And honestly, my adrenaline barely started to go up. At this point, I probably had 30 to 40 hand grenades thrown at the vehicle I was in already up to that point. 99% per, of them, other than the one that came in and didn't blow up, blow up outside the truck. It's loud. It throws shrapnel, sometimes cracks a window, but these trucks we were in were solid for a hand grenade. So I'm like, yeah, yeah, cool. We all button up, make sure everything's locked. And he said, no, it's in the truck. It's in the truck. And I'm like, what? And then he's shuffling around up in the gunner's hatch which in my mind i'm thinking he's about to jump because he just said there's a grenade in the truck which happened the last time to me that's what we train him to do you yell grenade let the crew know there's a grenade in the truck and then you get out save your life and then we open the doors and we get out but moving into this area we had combat locked the doors um it's, it's basically like a welded on crowbar vehicle gets hit and it flips through the air you don't get ejected you don't get pulled off into an alleyway by you know the enemy he knew this I see the grenade sitting up front right by the radios. Driver let go of the wheel, Bueller. He curled down into a ball and so did Sergeant T. And then McGinnis just drops down on top of it. And before I could even get my rifle to drop all the way down, it detonates. The explosion, it was an improvised hand grenade. And it was, you know, the loudest, most powerful thing I've ever heard. Blew the doors open and caught the inside of the truck on fire. Threw McGinnis on top of me ejected the medic uh, who was sitting next to me. He was on the street unconscious. He wounded Sergeant Bueller took shrapnel to the back of his skull when he curled down. So he was on the street. Sergeant T's back all on the side of his plate was severely wounded, big hole in it, but he jumped out and returned fire. 
So during this exchange, all I know is, you know, my ears are ringing. I was unconscious for maybe a minute or two. By this time, the vehicle had stopped moving. And I looked up and saw Ross and realized, you know, what had happened. And he was gone. So I pulled him over kind of off me into the middle of the truck and went for the medic bag, which was kind of luckily next to us. I started opening Doc's bag, and that's when I realized my arms weren't moving like I'm telling them to. So I went to completely go over, and my legs weren't moving either. When I noticed that I was just covered in shrapnel, I had a pretty large hole in my forearm. I had a four-inch piece sticking out of my face. I had a pop can size hole through my thigh. My right leg was just peppered all the way down. My right arm had been on fire and smoldering and peppered all over. And I'm hearing gunfire. So I'm in the mood, I'm gonna have to defend myself because now I'm defenseless. And then I realized my weapons were pretty much destroyed also. So I get my tourniquet, put my tourniquet on my arm, pass out, um, come to. And then at some point in time during this, uh, one of the other NCOs came over. They couldn't move me out of the vehicle and they didn't want to move Ross. So they just hooked us up to the truck in front and then they started dragging us back to base. So they evac me by ground back to Bob Apache it wasn't a far ride, a couple miles, um, but, you know, me and McGinnis in the back seat. And then when they brought him in, I was, hope, you know, very hopeful that the medics were like, no, he's just unconscious. Um, but when they removed him out of the vehicle, you could see the damage that was done. And that's when that moral pain really hit me, knowing that he, he, he was gone. There was nothing they could do. I saw him pull the blanket over him while they were treating me. And I'm yelling, damn, no, help Ross, help Ross. And, and that's when the doc was like, dude, you're, you're pretty messed up yourself. You know, you got holes everywhere. We're going to have to evac you. That was the last day I served in uniform. Wow. Ian, were you awake when they were having you and Ross in the, in that Humvee and you were going yeah, back? Yeah, I was in and out. I passed out a couple of times. I even dropped my rifle out the door, which I found out two days ago that my, my commander was the one that pulled over and picked it up. The doors, they couldn't shut because they had been, you know, completely damaged from the hand grenade. And I was kind of slumping and falling out while they were pulling me at, you know, 40 mile an hour. And I was trying to hold my rifle with the only hand that was working to shoot back at the enemy. And, you know, as I was losing consciousness, I dropped my rifle. And I remember that. I remember taking a big turn and, and you know, falling over next to Ross. And, and when they pulled me out of the truck, the adrenaline hit again. Uh, when they lifted me and then the blood starting to really flow from all the, the injuries that it woke me up. Wow, that is so powerful. Just that experience alone is enough to stay with you and affect you for the rest of your life. What were the extent of your injuries then? Usually when I talk to you guys, you go down this whole list of everything that was going on. Yeah, so I suffered a traumatic brain injury, um, three spots in the frontal lobe from the impact um, of the four-inch piece that went through my jaw, um, broke my jaw. I took several pieces to the left forearm, which destroyed the nerves in the arm, and I lost the use of my hand for a couple of years. Shrapnel all down my right arm, didn't hit anything major. Um, my left thigh has a pretty significant hole in it and it hit the the nerve in the leg so I lost the use of my left leg for a little bit most of the use I still had some uh, all the way into the hip socket took hand grenade shrapnel and so did my right knee so I was immobile for a couple of years I was on canes and crutches and had to learn to walk again and talk again um, they evac me to the green zone for surgery me Bueller and they put McGinnis in the chopper with us it was the most sobering moment of my life um, with my best friend, my roommate, and then our young soldier. I got McGinnis. I picked him up as a brand new soldier in my unit. He flew in and they were like, sorry, Newland, we got new guys for you. Go pick them up. And I was pissed because I, like, I'm training for NCO of the year. Like, I'm, I'm ready to go to the Rangers. I'm like, I don't have time to be training brand new privates. Come on, first sergeant. He's like, get down there and pick these guys up. They're yours. Train them. And McGinnis was one of them. One of the six guys that I went and picked up that day. So I had him Basically, from the time he left basic training, he was in my squad the entire time. How long was he there then before that day? About a year and a half, year and a half, two years-ish, something like that. And 
how long did it take for them to get you back to Walter Reed? Uh, actually longer than most. So they rushed me right away to surgery in the green zone. Um, I was pumped full of, full of meds, but I remember laying on a gurney naked and just the amount of casualties we took that week were just, over, I mean, I never seen anything like that. I mean, when you go to an emergency room here, uh, if you've ever been to an emergency room, you get a little spot, you know, the doctors come over and work. I'm in a hallway and there's just patients everywhere, blood everywhere, amputees coming in and out, burn victims, mostly Iraqi too. And here I am with nothing on, but bandages, laying there waiting for my turn to go into surgery and nurses stopping by every now and again and like dabbing the blood that was pulling up on me, checking my vitals and then moving on to the next patient. So they get me into surgery and I was out. I came to and they had removed the shrapnel from my face. So I couldn't speak. Um, my arm was completely wrapped all the way up to my elbow. Couldn't move that at all. Um, and then I had, you know, bandages on my legs and they were like, you know, we got, we got to evacuate launch more surgeries. We got to get you out of country. You're leaving in the morning. They put me on a C-17 next morning and we took off to flight. And I want to say two hours into the flight, I flatlined. Cold that I had in my thigh caught infection. And I remember when I came to later, I had this big red mark that went all the way up my chest, down my leg. And they said that that was where the infection had taken hold. I don't, I, I didn't feel anything. I came to and I seen, it looked like a hundred casualties stacked on litters on chains all the way in the entire shape of the aircraft from nose to tail. And they had me on the very bottom of one of the rows and I remember seeing the Air Force guy in his little pajama outfit with his dark helmet on, and he was doing chest compressions. And I was like, man, this is a weird dream. And I woke up, and days later, I'm in this dark hospital room where everybody's asleep. There's a lot of patients, and some civilian comes over to me, you know, some nurse wearing civilian clothes, and she's like, can I get you anything? We got Subway or Burger King, and of course, I can't eat at the time, and I'm like, no, I'm just glad I'm not in Iraq anymore. She's like, oh, no, sweetheart, you're in Iraq. You're, you're in Balad. You, you almost didn't make it. So they had to land you and a couple other guys here at the 64th cache or whatever I was at um, so we could stabilize you. So I ended up spending another week and a half in Iraq when I thought I was gone. And then from there, I went back to Launchville, Germany, where they weren't sure if they were going to send me to Walter Reed because my unit was stationed in Germany. And in my mind, I was bound and determined to go back to Iraq. And I was like, fix me here and send me back. And they're like, sorry, you're, you're jacked up, you know? And I'm like, do the operations here now. And so they were rushing me in to all the places in launch tools. So I was there probably three, four months in Germany trying to get the treatment done uh, before they realized, man, your, your career is over. It was, it was the brain injury is what they kept hanging up on. And you have given me so much detail more than i ever thought you would because i didn't know it's one thing to talk about your injuries and that's who i've spoken to and i haven't really spoken to people who your life was saved because of someone else and i know that's harder to talk about but i want you to know you can see it's really affected me and it's powerful and i hope people hear this because when you talk about you know, just the assembly line almost of people waiting to get surgery and. It didn't stop when I got to the hospitals. We took so many casualties during that year. I mean, I remember being in uh, another hallway, having surgery done on a bed in a hallway because there was no room, no spots available for another bed in all the rooms. Um, it was just, you know, we were overwhelmed. We didn't expect to take that many casualties at the time, but you know, the caveat to all this is his heroic actions that happened that day are the only reasons I kept having the fight that I have today. There was plenty of times when the nightmares wouldn't go away, the pain wouldn't stop, and it was, you know, you're never going to, your legs are never going to recover, you're never going to run again, you're never going to be able to do these things again, and it was devastating because I loved being in the military, I loved being on the front lines, I loved being a leader and excelling at my job and then within a flash that was all over but I had McGinnis's love and courage to continuously fall back on. Did you ever meet his family? All the time absolutely. Uh, the first time I met him we were at Arlington um, when we put his urn there first and this is during the Medal of Honor process so he'd already been put in for the Medal of Honor 
it hadn't been cleared through Congress yet. So he got the Silver Star. We were doing the ceremony, and his dad came over to me. Um, this is we just did a Pentagon briefing, just left the White House. And he says, I want you to know that what my son gave you was a gift. And a gift means it's not something you can ever repay. You don't pay somebody back for giving you a gift. So don't live your life like you're trying to ever pay him back. And that I just talked to him about it two days ago too, about how impactful that was for me and still continues to be. Because there's plenty of times where the guilt kicks in. You know, why did I survive? And and you know, all the pain, all the 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 trauma that we went through down there, not just McGinnis, Mock and Harkey and Compost and Wood and Montenegro and Agami and Lemus and Hebert and Sizemore and, and Alt Marsh and all the men that we lost give me that fight to continue on. So it was around 2010, my PTSD was through the roof. I was drinking myself to death. Doctors had me on something like 35 opioids a day, gave me a morphine injection kit for when the pain got too bad. And my VA doctors are like, you're going to have to get used to this. This is going to be your life from now on. And, you know, reflecting back on, on these men, and, and now guys are starting to commit suicide. Um, at this point in time, we lost two guys two thousand by 2010 to suicide. One of them, our senior leader, shot himself in sector. Didn't even get home yet, and we took our first suicide. And First Sergeant McKinney shot himself on patrol one day. He was a great leader. He was a, a role model to me. He was a ranger. I wanted to be like him. And you know that that, that really started to haunt me. And I'm on all these these drugs, and you know I go to the doctor, and I'm like, you know, you guys went to doctor school, right? I went to infantry school. You want to know how to take a building down or shoot a bullet really well, you come talk to me. So I figure that if I want to know how to recover from my injuries, I'm going to talk to you. So for five, six years now, I've been doing that and I'm not getting any better. So I was like, I think you're full of shit. So I stopped taking your drugs and I went back to the, the, the hard knocks life and just started pushing my body. I started, you know, I said, forget physical therapy at the VA. It's not doing anything. You know, they had me doing rubber band stretches every week, the same damn thing for years and I'm not getting better. And then I ran my first army 10 miler. I started running 10 Ks and half marathons. And then I started doing ruck runs and 30 Ks. And then I started running marathons. And then I, now I'm running ultra marathons. I started doing obstacle course races. And someone called me one day and, and, and said, hey, would you want to be on American Ninja Warrior? I'm like, sure. So I go do that. And, and you know, and every chance I get to tell his story to help motivate people, because they hear it and they're like, you still have all this metal in you, right? I'm like, yeah. And they're like, well, doesn't it hurt when you run? I was like, hell yeah, it hurts. It hurts like crazy. But every run I do and all that pain I go through, I reflect back on the men that died. So I might come in 50th place, but in my mind, I got first place because I'm still doing it. I'm not out there trying to win. I'm able to just finish. With the PTSD, I guess it's really hard to pinpoint for you. What was that about? I look at my calendar on the wall and it every month, some months, five times a month, there's a, a day that I lost somebody where I didn't go out, I didn't socialize. Um, in the beginning, all I did was drink or over-medicate myself. I was terrified to go to sleep because of the nightmares and the flashbacks I would have. I hated, and people always say, well, why can't you just remember your friends by the best things? And we do. But the days that they died, we remember that because we've watched something horrific happen to them and it's really tough. But recently, um, I, I decided I needed help. You know, uh, if, if I'm taking fire that's overwhelming, I call for help. I get on my radio and I call air support or I call mortars in. So I'm like, you know, I need to do this. I need to get help for myself with PTSD. And I did. And it's an ongoing process that I'm going to do the rest of my life. But, you know, I gave myself a new outlook on the depression, the anxiety, and the guilt that I go through. Now, instead of, I'm still going to remember those days, and I still do. But now I focus on what did I learn specifically from that individual that helped motivate me or helps me change my life in a positive way, that sacrifice, that loving your brothers more than yourself, Learn courage from Sizemore. Learn strength and leadership from Mock. Learn all these different characteristics to make you a better person. 
a stronger member of society. So that way I can stand out in the life that they gave for me to continue on living. Is there anything that you want to share that maybe Americans need to know about the military, about those sacrifices? You know, especially right now, people are just, they're, they're because of the, the, the hatred that's happening, we're starting to see anyone in uniform the same. Whether you got a shitty cop that does something really shitty or someone in any uniform that does something bad, you got that all over. We're people. People make stupid mistakes. There are plenty of people full of hate out there. 99.9% .9 of all the rest of us are doing it for the right reasons. You know, I went over there and I spilled my blood for the person that's waving their flag or the person that doesn't want to wave the flag for them to have both the same rights. And it was never about hatred. I'm going to go over there because I want to kill people. It was about protecting people and allowing them to have freedom. You know, there's a lot of animosity right now, like I said, especially for law enforcement. And I got a lot of buddies that came back and became law enforcement officers. And they're doing it because they're good cops. They want to protect the community. They're not out there trying to hurt innocent people. They're out there trying to stop burglaries. They're trying to stop rapes. They're trying to stop murder from happening on the streets that they went to Iraq to fight for. And just because you see someone that's a veteran wearing the hat, wearing the shirt, or someone in uniform today, don't lump them immediately into this negative idea. Believe that there's still good people in uniforms, because there are. Do you think it is important that we continue to share your story, to share Ross's story, to share all those stories? Is it important that people know about those? Because it's, it's history like that that gives people the truth. That these actions, these heroic actions that people do die to save other people's lives is real. It's not something on TV. This is a real thing that happened that this 19-year-old kid gave his life to save his brothers in arms lives that day. And it's something that if we all took a little piece of that in our lives, it would make us better people. What are you doing today, Ian? Um, so now I'm working for the National Cemetery um, on the internment crew. So now I'm burying veterans that have um, come to the end of their lives and making it stay nice and pretty. <laughs> <laughs> you ever been to a National Cemetery? There's a reason it looks like a golf course. Yeah, I've been to I've been to Arlington, and that yeah, there's definitely a sacred feeling there. It's sacred ground. I was a chef for many years. I went to culinary school when I got out. Went to business school, but due to COVID, um, the culinary field has just been destroyed. So I had an opportunity to go back to work for the federal government, and I decided I wanted to work at the cemetery and you know say goodbye to those that have that have decided to uh, return home to wherever their creator brought them from. What veterans organizations do you support that could really use our help, Ian? I'd start with OperationEnduringWarrior.org. Uh, like I said, they, they came to me when I was first wounded and told me that they're going to help me run again. And every year I'm doing a race with them, whether it's a mud run or an obstacle course race or the Army 10-miler or Baton Memorial Death March in the deserts of New Mexico. These guys help empower us that have been wounded to keep pushing ourselves physically. Um, mental health, for those that have been wounded, the Purple Heart Foundation, those guys have helped me, um, the America's Fund, or I know a few guys that have really struggled during COVID that couldn't afford to pay their bills. America's Fund helps them out. It's also Semper Fi Fund is what they're called as well for the Marine Corps guys. Any chance you get to support those kind of organizations, especially those that have the right idea. Warrior's Heart is a PTSD facility down in Bandera, Texas, that is doing phenomenal things that a lot of people don't know about. So I'd like to give them a shout out too. What does America mean to you? Freedom and love. That's a great way to end. Thank you for sharing your American story, Ian. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Ian, thank you again for being so real on this episode and sharing so much, even the most difficult parts of your life. I think you are so brave and courageous, and I know the listeners do as well. I wish you nothing but health and happiness in the coming days, months, and years. Do me a solid, leave a rating, 
subscribe, share with friends and family. This podcast is so important. The stories that we share must be heard, and I need your help to do that. If you have a few moments, if you can do these simple things, it means a great deal. Next week, my guest is John Peck. John Peck is one of the five surviving quad amputees from the War on Terror. See you Friday.